Here in the story of the blind man uh, who, is, who received his sight, uh, there are three important aspects for us to consider, and this is how we're going to break this down. Number one, we have the question of suffering. Number two, we have the sword of contention. And number three, we have an illustration of salvation. So again, a question of suffering, a sword of contention, and an illustration of salvation. First of all, we have the question of suffering. Here's the scene. Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? If you, if you read the previous chapters in chapter 8, which we studied just uh, two weeks ago, actually, we saw that Jesus was in Jerusalem after the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he decided to hang out in Jerusalem a little bit longer. So here he is. He's in Jerusalem with his disciples, and they are on the Temple Mount. That's where we left off at the end of chapter 8. So they're there up on the Temple Mount and they walk by a blind man who is sitting there and apparently begging. We read that later in the story. And this story tells us that the man was blind from birth. He was, he was born this way. Now, if you've ever been to developing countries, um, you've probably seen similar sights. Because in developing countries, as they were in the days of Jesus, there weren't a lot of services for people who were handicapped. And, and because of that, and there wasn't a lot of concern either for people who were handicapped. So people who were handicapped, and even, again, still in the developing world today, they, they are so marginalized that the only thing left for them to do, basically, many times, is to beg. And, uh, and often you'll see handicapped people begging at places like they usually will go to places where there's a lot of foot traffic, right? So you get tourist uh, destinations or subway entrances, entrances to cathedrals, places where a lot of people go by foot. And so throughout the New Testament also we see several stories that give us the indication that up on the Temple Mount... Uh, which was a religious and a, a tourist site that had a lot of foot traffic, there were also a great number of handicapped people who would beg there. So the disciples, as they're spending this week in Jerusalem, you know, up on the Temple Mount, they have seen a lot of handicapped people begging. And so they walk by this one man in particular, and they see that he's blind and he's begging, and they ask Jesus the great theological question, a theological question which is still a question that people deal with and ask in our day, and that is the question of suffering. And it's basically the question of why. Why is this man suffering? And, and why this man in particular? of all the people in the world. Why is it this man who suffers? And they're trying to do what all of us try to do when we're faced with suffering, and that's this. They're trying to make sense of it. They want to understand, and, and they ask Jesus. They have the king of the cosmos, God in human flesh, come to them and walking with them. They have the opportunity to ask him this great question, one of the great theological questions of all time. Why? And, uh, and what we see in their, in their question is basically this. You know, this is, the, this is the question of suffering. If God is so loving, then why does he allow suffering? And if God is so powerful, then why doesn't he stop suffering, right? That's, that's what we think when we think about God and we think about suffering. So here is Emmanuel, God with them, and they get to ask him a question. Why? And Jesus answers their question, but the first thing you must see before we look at the answer is there are two false understandings about suffering that are implicit in their question, right? There's two false understandings of suffering. They ask, who sinned that this man suffers? 
In other words, who, whose fault is this? Was it this man who sinned or was it his parents who sinned and he's suffering as a result? So there are two false understandings here in that question and Jesus answers the question and says, neither. Neither one of them. And he goes on to give them the right understanding of suffering, which is this. Neither but this happened so that the work of God might be shown in his life. This is a really important thing for us to understand, but at, at one, because at one point or another, suffering is going to enter into your life. If it hasn't yet, it, it's, it's a matter of time because this is the reality of life in the world. And, and it's very important to know what the word of God has to say about your suffering. So there are two false understandings that we see here in this question that the disciples ask. Was it this man or his parents who sinned that caused this problem in his life? Now they, these were the two explanations that the rabbis used to give. The rabbis at this time, this was how they explained it. Why is that person suffering? They would say, well, either his parents sinned and it's some kind of curse has come upon the child, or this person sinned and this is the divine punishment for that sin. Uh, I, I think you can break these up and I call them this. I call one the blame track and one the guilt track okay so these are the two false understandings of suffering right one is the blame track and the other is the guilt track and the blame track basically says this <clears throat> if I'm hurting if I'm suffering then there's somebody out there to blame for it right I've got to find a scapegoat I've got to find somebody to be angry at uh, for the mess that I'm in right maybe they say maybe this man is the way he is because of something that his parents did wrong that's the blame track and and that's actually very uh, popular these days you know there's tons of of books out there which encourage us to blame our parents for everything that's wrong right all of our problems and all of our dysfunctions we can blame them on our parents uh, that's essentially what these guys were saying. Hey, what's wrong with you? You can blame it on your parents. So it's nothing new. It's been going on for over 2,000 years. I always joke with my wife, Rosemary, that, yeah, sure, our kids are cute now, but I can't wait until they grow up so that they can blame us for all their problems, right? But another variation on the blame track is to blame God, and this one actually happens a lot with Christians even, right? They say, God, why is my life this way? I see a lot of other people out there who are far less deserving than I am, but yet their lives are going better than mine. Why? And, and like I said, Christians do this one a lot. They'll say, God, I gave my life to you, and now look where, where I am. I'm worse off than I was before. I've done all this stuff for you. I pay my tithe. I attend church. And what am I getting in return? Nothing. God, how could you do this to me? And they get angry at God. Now, I've seen people actually do this uh, quite a number of times. New believers, right, what they will do is they will give Christianity a shot, right? They'll give it a try with the assumption that if they make some commitments to God, then God will make their life easier in return. Kind of a, I scratch your back if you scratch my back type of deal, right? Like, I'll become bros with Jesus, then I'll be on the inside track because I'll have a friend in the business who can make some stuff happen for me, right? And when it doesn't happen that way, guess what they do? They get angry with God. They get upset because they feel that God didn't come through for them. And that's the blame track. And Jesus, as we see here, he says that is not a proper understanding of suffering. It's not a good response to suffering. 
Another version of the blame track is to blame your problems on another group of people. This is a scary one, actually. This is the kind of thing that leads to things like genocide and the Holocaust, or, or even just simply racial tensions, right, or, or, or you know, class divisions and wars. Like, the reason we have the problems we have is because of them, so let's go get them, right? That's the blame track. Now, on the other hand, you have the guilt track. Now, this is where they say, maybe this man was born blind because of something that he did. Now, if this man was born this way, well, then how is it even possible that this could be caused by something that he did? Well, the rabbis would have said, well, God must have looked forward into the future and foresaw that this man would be selfish and sinful, and therefore God struck him with blindness as a punishment. Now, the guilt track doesn't look outside to blame somebody else. The guilt track looks inside and says, it must all be my fault. If only I were a better person, then life would be going better, then I wouldn't be in this mess that I'm in. The other day, I got a phone call uh, from a woman that I met during the flood, and uh, she was actually living here in this building, in the memorial building, for about a week when this place was used as an evacuation center. And at that time, I was coming down here every day, and I was serving as a chaplain. And, uh, and what I would do is I would, I would go around, I would pray for people, I would read to them, I would talk with them, and of course I would share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. And, and this lady was one of the people who I prayed for. She was actually right over here in this corner, and, uh, and she called me on the phone because I had given her my card, so she called me on the phone, wanted to talk, and ask if I would pray for her again. So uh, she started telling me about her life over the phone and, and telling me about a lot of the things she'd been through, and honestly, she'd been through quite a lot of hardship, I mean, ever since childhood, and this flood was just, you know, just one more thing on top of everything else. So, of course, you know, I, I shared the hope of Jesus Christ with her. I told her that the truest hope I could give her is that she would place her hope in something everlasting. Not in the temporal things of this world, which can be swept away in a flood, but in Jesus Christ and what he did for her on the cross so that she could have everlasting life. And I told her, you know, in light of eternity, if you look at this life, it's like a drop of water in the ocean, right? It's like, it's, uh, it's but a moment, right? The, the few fleeting decades you have here on earth, if you don't have the hope of heaven, this is the best it's ever going to get. But if you do have the hope of heaven, this is the worst it's ever going to get, right? And I told her, you need to put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to be saved. And she told me, well, you know, I mean... I believe in a higher power and I, I believe in karma and I think that considering all I've been through God will let me into heaven because he'll see that I've already suffered enough and I said you believe in karma seriously like after all you've been through you really believe in karma and she's like yeah and I'm like do you do you know what karma teaches like are you sure? And she's like, yeah, I think I know what karma teaches. I'm like, I don't think you do, you know? And because basically what I told her is karma teaches the guilt track, right? The guilt track that if you're a person uh, who has had terrible things happen to you or terrible things have been done to you, the suffering that you've endured in your life, karma would say that all happened because you weren't good enough right? Because you weren't good enough. And basically you earned those things. That was all divine retribution because you're not good enough. It was your fault that those things happened to you. And she said, no, I, I can't believe that that was true. And I said, I don't believe that was true either, but that's what karma teaches. That's why I don't think you really believe in karma, right? I said, that's why you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior and not yourself as your savior. 
So that's the guilt track. But again, Jesus tells his disciples here that this guilt track is also a false understanding, a false explanation of suffering. And Jesus responds to both the blame track and the guilt track and says, neither one is the answer to the question of suffering. So what is the answer to the question of suffering? Here's what Jesus is saying, and here's what the Bible teaches throughout. Suffering exists because of sin in general, not because of sin in particular. So suffering exists because of sin in general, but not because of sin in particular. And not only that, but Jesus gives great hope to the person who is suffering. Notice what he says. The reason this has happened is so that the work of God can be shown in this man's life. And what that means is this. When you suffer, it isn't God punishing you for your sins. You know why? Because Jesus Christ came and lived and he took all the punishment for every one of your sins past present and future he took it all upon himself on the cross of calvary god isn't going to punish you for something that's already been paid for okay so that means that if god allows you to suffer it is never for nothing there is always a purpose there is always an objective and, and here's what, what we learn about suffering, that God actually hates the fact that you are suffering. He's not happy that you're in pain, but in spite of that, he will allow it in order to do work in your life or through your life that he couldn't have done otherwise. So after answering the question of suffering, Jesus bends down, he spits in the dirt, he makes mud, he puts it on this man's eyes, and then he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And what does the man do? He blindly obeys. You get that? Blindly, he's a blind guy, he can't see. So he blindly obeys. This man's eyes were open and, uh, and he could see, right? Now what's up with the mud in his eyes? I mean, Jesus healed other blind people, but he didn't put mud in their eyes, right? Sometimes he just touched them or sometimes he just spoke and their eyes were open. So why does he need to put mud in this man's eyes? Well, I'll get to that in just a minute, but here's the thing I want you to see. While we're still on the topic of suffering, and, and here's the tie-in to Christmas, because you're like, I thought this was a Christmas sermon. <laughs> so the miracle of Jesus healing blind people, did you know this? This is actually the most frequently recorded miracle in all of the Gospels. This is the miracle that happens, uh, that's recorded. There are more stories of Jesus healing blind people than doing any other miracle in the whole of the New Testament. This is the most frequently recorded miracle of Jesus, healing blind people. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the miracle, which was going to be the calling card, so to say, the sign of the Messiah, was that he would open the eyes of the blind. Even Isaiah mentions it on three different occasions. Messiah, he's going to come and he's going to open the eyes of the blind. This is going to be his calling card. It's the sign of the Messiah. So suffering exists because of sin in general. Suffering exists because we live in a fallen world, right? Like pirates of the Caribbean, we're born under a curse, right? Suffering and sickness and death, these were not part of God's original design. And that's why whenever we encounter these things, when we encounter suffering and, and death and sickness, we're overcome by this feeling that these things are foreign that there's something wrong about them, that they're not right, that it shouldn't be this way. And that's the same feeling that the disciples have. They're, they're walking in the Temple Mount. They see these handicapped people all around them, and they just have this over, they're overcome with this feeling that maybe this is the way it is, but this isn't the way it should be. It's not right. 
And so Jesus comes on the scene, the Messiah, the promised one, the hope of the nations. And what does he do? He goes around and he makes things right. Do you notice that? He makes things right. He makes things the way they should be. He restores the original intention, right? He goes around. He, he heals the sick. He heals the handicapped. He raises the dead. He feeds the hungry. He casts out demons. You know what these miracles are? Everyone that Jesus does, what's the significance of these miracles? It's this. They are glimpses of what is to come. They're previews of coming attractions. They're windows into heaven, right? Into what God is going to do when Jesus returns and renews all things. Jesus says here in the text, he says, I am the light of the world. And he comes into a world shrouded in darkness under a curse and he opens a window into heaven and he lets the light in. That is the hope of Advent. That is the hope of Christmas. Advent means the coming of the Lord. And at Advent we remember, we, we reflect on the fact that God has come to us on that first Christmas and, very importantly, that he's coming again. In his first coming, Jesus not only came as our savior and our substitute, but here's the thing. He didn't just come to save us from our sins. He came to bring us a preview of coming attractions and that is the hope that we have that's the hope that we focus our hearts on during this Advent season that the day is coming and it's closer with every passing day when Jesus will come again and he will make all things right amen that's what we look forward to when there will be no more sickness when there will be no more suffering no more pain and no more tears that's the hope of heaven and that is the hope of Christmas that's the hope that we celebrate when we remember the baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and as we move on in our story Jesus is going to make it clear to us how we can make that hope our own but let me move on to our second point here and that's this first we saw a question of suffering now we see a sword of contention, a sword of contention. Jesus heals this man, and from verses 8 to 34, we see that the healing of this man causes a great controversy, right? Causes arguments, and we see it even causes divisions. In verse 8, we read that the man's neighbors were the first to see him, and they were so shocked by the change that Jesus had brought about in this man's life that they weren't even sure that that was the same man. It seems from this story that, that he walks up to them and he says hi and then they turn to each other and start talking to each other about him. He's standing there the whole time and they're like, hey, isn't that our neighbor who used to beg up by the temple? And they're like, no, I don't know. I don't think so. Somebody's like, yeah, I think that's him. Other people are like, no, that can't be him. It must just be somebody who looks like him. And it says that he's standing there the whole time. In verse 9, it says he kept on saying or continuously said, it's me, right? He's standing there. They're talking about him. He's like, no, really, it's me. I'm not kidding. And they're like, shh, be quiet. We're trying to figure out who you are, right? I don't think it's him. It just looks like him, right? One time somebody, you know, this, uh, this whole thing about doppelganger, right? Like you look like somebody else. So one time somebody told me that I look like Leonardo DiCaprio, but I think that might, might just have been because I'm short. Um, one time I was in New York City and I actually saw Leonardo DiCaprio, but I thought that it was Matt Damon, right? So, so I saw Leonardo DiCaprio standing like, I don't know, maybe 10 feet away from me. So I called over to the people I was with. I said, hey guys, look, it's, uh, it's uh, Matt Damon. And uh, well, turns out it was actually Leonardo DiCaprio. And on top of everything else, he heard me say that, right? And uh, he just looked at me and gave me this strange look and walked away. And then my friends were like, you're dumb. That was Leonardo DiCaprio, right? 
what's the point of the story? Here's the point. Not only do I not look like Leonardo DiCaprio, but apparently I don't even know what Leonardo DiCaprio looks like. <laughs> but here's the point. This man noticed, uh, these, this man's neighbors noticed the change in his life that resulted from him having encountered Jesus. The people who were closest to this man, the people who interacted with him day in and day out, they almost could not believe that it's the same person. The change was so apparent. It was so drastic, so dramatic. Now let me ask you, how about you? What about the people who are closest to you, the people you interact with every day? How apparent is the work of God in your life to those people? In Acts chapter 4, it says of Peter and John, uh, that the people who met them, they perceived that they were common men, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, how I want that to be said of me. Oh, how I want it to be said of you. I want it to be said of us. That when people meet us, they would be able to tell, those people have been with Jesus. Those people have encountered Jesus, and he has made such a deep impact on your life that you're a changed person. The blind man tells his neighbors about his encounter with Jesus. He tells them his story in this. He goes on and says, here's what happened. I met this man named Jesus. I never seen him before. That was another blind joke, actually. I'm sorry. But uh, he says, I, I met this man named Jesus, and he came up to me, and he put mud on my eyes, and he told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. So I did, and I was healed. What's he doing? He's just telling his story, right? That's all. He's just telling his story. That's called a testimony, right? In verse 13, they take him to the Pharisees. And here's where we see the real controversy begin. They begin this argument in verse 13, if you're following along. And, and it gets so bad to the point in verse 16 that it says this, there was a great division among them. There was a great division among the Pharisees. And here's the point we see. Everyone in the Bible who encountered the real Jesus had an extreme reaction. Everyone in the Bible who encountered the real Jesus had an extreme reaction. Nobody ever said after meeting Jesus, hmm, well, that was interesting for you, I guess, maybe, right? Nobody ever did that. Everybody who encountered him had an extreme reaction to him. Jesus himself even said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now that sword he's talking about, this isn't the sword of, of war or battle. It speaks of division, right? Like in our day, we would say, you can't sit on the fence. Well, they would say, you can't stand on a sword, which, which is true, right? It's a sword of contention. It, it's a dividing line. It's a line in the sand, right? And Jesus goes on there to say in Matthew 10 in, in, that his message and his actions would unite some people, but they would divide other people. He would be a controversial figure. He would be a point of division, a point of contention. And that certainly is the case. Even in our day, we see that. You know, this week I was, I was reading about this whole thing with A&E and Duck Dynasty, and, uh, and uh, I don't really want to get all into it, but the one thing that I found was interesting about this is that they said that A&E had been editing out the name of Jesus from their family prayers on the show Duck Dynasty, right? And so they would pray, and A&E would include the prayers, but they would edit out the name of Jesus. Now, how interesting is that? Now, A&E is a private company. They can do whatever they want. They can, that's their right, right? But my point is this. Jesus elicits extreme reactions in people. 
And either you're enraptured by him and can't get enough of him, or you're offended by him and you want to get away from him. But if you really encounter Jesus, you cannot remain neutral about him. If you really encounter Jesus, you cannot honestly say, well, that's good for you, I guess, right? Uh, and, and this is part of the Christmas message, actually. God became a man so that we could encounter him. And if you really encounter him, you cannot stay neutral about him. You know, think about the Christmas story. Sleeping in heavenly peace was probably just about the last thing that Mary and Joseph were doing after Jesus was born. Partly because he was a baby. And I don't know how many people who wrote that song had actually been around babies. But sleeping in heavenly peace is something they do for about an hour at a time. And then they wake up crying and they need to be fed and changed and, and rocked, you know. Whenever I hear somebody say, I'm going to sleep like a baby. I wonder if that means they're going to wake up crying three times in the middle of the night and then wet the bed, right? Uh, but, but that wasn't the reason, that wasn't the only reason why Mary and Joseph weren't sleeping in heavenly peace. The main reason they weren't sleeping in heavenly peace after Jesus was born was because King Herod, when he found out that Jesus had been born as the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews, the, the hope of the nation, the Savior of the world, what did he do? He ordered all baby boys under two years old in and around Bethlehem to be murdered. That's terrible. And Mary and Joseph, what did they have to do? They had to flee with baby Jesus to Egypt until that Herod died. And it was only when he died that it was safe for them to return. You know, I used to work with refugees, and, uh, and I always used to point this out to the refugees. I say, look at this. Jesus was a refugee. Everyone who truly grasps who Jesus is and why he came, they had an extreme reaction. Herod had an extreme reaction. That is not a normal reaction, right? I'm just going to kill all the babies, right? No, he wants to get rid of him. He's, he has an extreme reaction. The man born blind had an extreme reaction. The neighbors had an extreme reaction. The Pharisees had an extreme reaction. Nobody who sees the real Jesus can remain on the fence. So the question is, how about you? Where do you stand today in regard to Jesus? Jesus said that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will walk in the light of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the door. Anyone who wants to come to God, anyone who wants to go to heaven, you have to go through me. Now, these are statements that you cannot remain neutral about. You either believe them and they will shape your life or you reject them and that will also shape your life. But you can't just say, well, that's nice for you, I guess. The Pharisees understood that and they start debating with this man. They're upset and, and they even start calling Jesus all kinds of names and trying to discredit him. And they start asking this man all kinds of questions in verses 24 through 27. All kinds of questions. They start drilling him, trying to get some reason, some detail out of the story that they can use to discredit Jesus. And the man says, look, I, I don't know all the answers to your questions. I, I've told you my story. I don't actually have anything else to say. Here's all I know. I was blind. This man, I encountered this man, and now I see. That's all. Now, friends, that's called a testimony. If you've encountered Jesus, you have a testimony. You have a story that you can tell. And, that, and that's the beautiful thing about a testimony, what we see here. You don't have to 
debate intellectually. You don't have to debate philosophically. All you have to know is the story of how you were before and how Jesus came in and met you and changed your life. And notice, as much as these Pharisees don't want to believe this story, they cannot argue with what this man has to say, his testimony. If you've encountered Jesus, then you have a story to tell, a testimony to share. And I encourage you to take the opportunities that God gives you to tell that story and share it. So let's move on to our third point, and this is this, the illustration of salvation. The illustration of salvation. Now this chapter ends, and the the story ends in this way. I'll read from verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast the man out, and when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Jesus makes it clear here that the physical miracle of opening the eyes of the blind, of giving sight to this blind man, is an illustration of salvation. Jesus doesn't want to just open this man's eyes physically. He wants to open this man's eyes spiritually. And there are a number of times in the Bible where this parallel is made between blindness physically and blindness spiritually. For example, you know, a number of verses in the Bible that say something along the lines of having eyes they do not see and having ears they do not hear. And what that refers to is you can be completely well physically but yet handicapped spiritually. You can be completely well physically, but blind spiritually and deaf spiritually, stumbling around in the dark, not hearing the truth, bumping into things and hurting yourself because you can't see things for how they are. This story is an illustration of salvation. All of us were born like this man. We were born blind. And it requires Jesus coming into our lives and making us able to see. What's the significance of the mud? I mentioned this earlier. What's the significance of the mud? The Gospel of John is specifically focused on the topic that Jesus is God come to us so that we can encounter him. And here's this man, blind from birth, and Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, God who formed the first man out of the dust of the earth. Once again, he reaches down in the dust of the earth to make this man able to see. To create eyesight. He's never had eyesight. Jesus is doing a creative miracle and uses the dust of the earth to help this man made of dust to be able to see. The Bible says that God knows our form, that we are but dust, that we came from dust and and one day when we shed this earthly tent, our bodies will return to dust and we will move on to our eternal dwelling. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God's word says this. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power, show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
Here's the thing. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the light of the world will come and dwell within you. He will shine in the darkness of your heart, in the depths of your soul, and the richness of the glory of God will enter into your earthly body, which is, as we read here, a jar of clay, right? It's made from the dust. It will return to the dust. It's kind of earthy, right? It's a jar of clay. But here's the amazing thing that this is pointing out to us. And it's almost beyond our ability to truly comprehend that the glory of God, the light of heaven, dwells within us, a great treasure in a simple clay jar. And here's the thing I want to point out, and this is my, my closing thing. In order for people to see the light of Jesus Christ within us, sometimes our clay jar has to be broken. Let me say that again. In order for people to see the light of Jesus Christ within you, sometimes your clay jar has to be broken. In Judges chapter 7, we read the story of Gideon. And what happens there is this. God called Gideon to go and set the people of Israel free from the oppression of the Midianites. And so God tells Gideon to go and fight the Midianites, but he says, I want you to fight them with 300 soldiers going against roughly 140,000 Midianites, right? 300 soldiers against 140,000 Midianites. And God gives them a strategy for how to do it. The Midianites live in this valley which is surrounded by hills on all sides. And so the Israelites were to go and stand on the edge of this, uh, of this valley, right? Around in the hills. While the Midianites were sleeping in the darkness of night. And each man was given a trumpet and a clay jar with a torch inside of it. Now, do you see the picture? Are you following me? Clay jars with bright lights inside of them, right? So when they get into position and Gideon gives the signal and what they're going to do is they're going to blow their trumpets and they're going to shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon and then they're going to break the pots to reveal the bright lights. So they go and they do it and it works and they're victorious. And here's the thing, because God set them free in the darkness, how? By revealing the light. But the light was only able to be revealed when the pot was cracked, when the pot was shattered, when it was crushed and broken. In order for the light to shine forth and flow forth, the clay jar had to be broken. And let me tell you this, the same is true of you and I. We have this precious treasure, the light of the glory of Christ in our bodies, in clay jars. And sometimes in order for his light to shine forth brightly and powerfully, it's required that we must be broken, that we must be cracked. This man born blind, this is the story of his life. Brokenness, suffering, and why, Jesus says, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So that God could work in him and through him in a powerful way. You know, sometimes the purpose behind your suffering, behind your jar being broken or cracked, is so that others can see the light of the glory of Christ in and through you in a greater way. Friends, the story of Christmas is the story of a clay jar that was broken so that light could shine forth and bring redemption and freedom to many. God became a man. He is the light of the world. He came to us and he was clothed in a jar of clay, a body made from the dust of the earth. And that jar of clay that he was clothed in, it was broken. It was crushed so that the light could shine forth and bring light into the darkness. And everyone who comes to him, he will open your eyes 
so that you can truly see and you will no longer walk in darkness but you'll have the light of life. Come to him because he came to you. That's the hope of Christmas. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come to us. Lord, thank you that you took on a jar of clay, Lord, a body made of the dust of the earth. And Lord, thank you that you were broken. But Lord, thank you that by your brokenness, you shed forth the light of the world into our hearts within us, Lord, and into, into the world to save and to give uh, sight to the blind, Lord, to open the deaf ears. And Lord, thank you that the day is coming and we pray that it would come soon, Lord, when you will make all things new. We thank you for that hope of Christmas. We thank you that you came to us. And Lord, help us that if there's any of us who are lukewarm, who are trying to ride the fence, who aren't really following you, Lord, as you said, he who follows me will have the light of life. Lord, I pray that today you would move in our hearts that, Lord, today would be a day of change for us. When we say, Lord, I'm yours. I haven't been yours completely, but Lord, today I draw a line in the sand and I'm yours because you came and gave yourself for me. Lord, we thank you for that and as we continue in worship, we just want to give thanks for all that you've done, all that you are doing. We thank you for your providence in our lives and your love, Lord, that even our suffering you govern and you use it for your glory. We pray that you would, Lord, in the lives of everyone here who's suffering, Lord, would you use it for your glory. And Lord, we just pray that you give us peace in our hearts as we celebrate this Christmas season. In Jesus' name.